Chapel, Mason City. With the master-servant relationships, master-servant relationships. Now, the way that we would look at this in today's culture is employee-employer relationships. So you say, well, this is really practical because I work. Yeah, a lot of us will spend you know, the majority of our lives working. This is very practical. You say, I, I knew I was going to get something practical Sunday morning at church. Well, here we go. <clears throat> we see in this world a tendency with humans to be able to somehow disassociate themselves from Christian duty when it comes to work relationships. It's kind of a thing that we see where we say, this is just a place that we're going to get our money. It's just, we're just going here to do this. So I don't necessarily have the same respect for my boss as I would if he was like a fellow brother in the Lord at church and, and vice versa. Sometimes bosses or, or employers tend to look at people as just, they're just out there helping to fulfill, you know, they're making money, they're punching the clock, they're working for me. And so there's this sort of this phenomenon that we see in the workplace in our world today of where we kind of disassociate from Christian character in these environments. So it's pretty interesting to look at what God's will is for the workplace, and we find that today in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, as we approach your word here today, Lord, we do recognize its place of authority over us. We recognize the inerrancy of scriptures, the authority of scripture that men were moved along by your Holy Spirit. And we Submit ourselves, Lord, to you and to your word here today. And so it is our prayer that you would make the scriptures live to us, show us ourself, show us our Savior, minister your grace to us in the areas that we're falling short. Encourage us, Lord, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The outline is very simple today. It's two parts. Christ-likeness as servants, number two. Christ-likeness as masters. Christ-likeness as servants, number one. The word bondservants there, if you'll notice it in your Bible, it's the word doulos in the, word in the Greek language. You know, the Bible is written in Greek, translated to English. Sometimes we look at the Greek words to kind of get more of an understanding of the words that are used. And the word doulos here, it simply just means slave. Now, Paul deals with Christian slaves, apparently under Christian masters. How should the gospel affect that relationship? Now, when we think of slavery today, we think of what went on in the South, the absolute atrocity of people, you know, owning other people. And, you know, it's, it's an atrocity. It's, it's, we have the, our minds think a certain way when we think of the word slavery. But in the world that Paul wrote, slavery was a different thing. And actually in the Hebrew world, in the Jewish world, uh, in ancient times, slavery was a different thing. In fact, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt or to, you know, if you stole some money from somebody or stole something, you could sell yourself into slavery with that person to pay that back. Um, 
You would think of slaves almost in that day more like uh, Mr. Belvedere. You guys remember that? Like a butler almost. Somebody that uh, takes care of duties within a house. And they would place themselves into this a lot of times. So it's not exactly the same institution as we would see today. Now, granted, within this, there was mistreatment. There were, you know, all kinds of mistreatment back in, you know, Old Testament times as well. That's why God in Leviticus, he gives rules concerning how people, how masters are to treat their slaves. He brings uh, a sense of decency and fairness to the whole thing. And uh, for example, you could serve as a slave, as a bondservant for six years. The seventh year, you would go free. You could have your freedom. Anybody could buy you back out of slavery at any time. You could buy yourself. Uh, every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, all slaves went free. That's just a little bit of background. So when Paul addresses bondservants, though, you have to know that he addresses a large group of people in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, it's estimated that up to half of the residents, half of the citizens, you know, in the, in the Roman uh, world at one time were slaves. Every household had, uh, I know, somebody serving as a bond servant. And so it would be kind of confusing, right? So in these relationships, somebody would get saved. Maybe the master would get saved, and then now the, the, the slave, the, the worker is not a Christian. And how does the gospel affect this? Or vice versa, the servant gets saved, and they're still working then for a, a pagan master. So how should this, how should the gospel, how should Christ affect these relationships? Just want to make a little aside here today. Some people will say that the Bible condones slavery. It's not true that the Bible condones slavery. However, like I mentioned in the Old Testament, there were rules and regulations to make sure that people were treated humanely in these situations. So you might ask, why, why doesn't the Bible just straight up prohibit slavery? Well, scholars have speculated, and it's most likely that, you know, in New Testament times, if Christians were to just try to abolish slavery altogether with the, uh, you know, up to half of the Roman Empire at, at once being slaves, it's very likely that there would be violence against Christians uh, as a budding, uh, you know, church, you know, growing. And, and if they came out and they spoke against this and, you know, and some scholars speculate uh, like that. But what we do know for sure is the slavery institution uh, has been abolished, you know, by Christians. You know, you study Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln, and, and you see that in different countries that were in different places throughout time, that where the gospel came, where the truth that Jesus Christ taught that all men and women are equal, there's no man, woman, Jew, Greek, that all are one in Christ, that principle, as it got embedded into society, essentially led people toward the prohibition of slavery. So that's my take on that. So Interesting, though, that Christians are, are responsible for ending uh, slavery in a lot of situations. He goes on, now he gives the command, verse 5. He says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So here's the command. Be obedient. Respect the authority over you. Now, when he says according to the flesh, this gets at the fact that the authority of a human master does not extend into the spiritual life of a person. Now, this has to be said, of course, you are never to obey a boss that would ask you to do something illegal or immoral. I'll say this off the bat. If you work for a company or an individual that is doing unethical, immoral, or illegal stuff as a Christian, you should look for a new job. Now, this obedience is to dis be displayed in the following manner. In the rest of verse 5 through 7, he's going to give sort of the mannerism. This is the manner of how this obedience is to be uh, carried out. He says it's to be carried out with fear and trembling. 
Now, this is not talking about cowering in terror, although you may have had a boss like that where you went around and you were cowering in terror from that boss. You know, you're trying to hide from him. You know, like, I'm going to punch in. I'm going to go to the bathroom for like three hours until his shift's over. You know, I'm scared of this dude. Now, what this means is fear and trembling. It means that you are very, very concerned to fulfill what is expected of you and not to offend your boss. Uh, or the Lord. That's, that's the idea of fear and trembling. I'm taking great care to not be offensive to my employer. And he goes on to say, in sincerity of heart, the King James has it, singleness of heart. Uh, what he means is conscientious. This passage says that when we obey, we shouldn't just pretend or go through the motions. Instead, our obedience should come from a genuine and sincere place in our hearts. Uh, no fakeness or double-mindedness. And he says, as to Christ. Now, this is the comparison. What Paul is saying here is at your job, the way that you and I serve, it needs to be compared as to how we serve Christ. In other words, it needs to be like how we serve Christ. Now, many people today don't see a connection between work and worship. Why? Well, a few different reasons. Some people just, they, they think of work as like it actually gets in the way of worship. They're like, it's so time-consuming. If I didn't have to work so much, I could worship more. Other people's cultural perceptions, you know, they have this cultural perception of like, well, ministry is ministry and work is work. It's a cultural perception. Uh, what that guy does that's standing up here, he's doing ministry, you know, or, or the guy behind the sound booth or the people. That's ministry and then work is work. That's a cultural perception, which leads to the next one I wrote here, just the sacred, secular mindset. People... Some people view life as there's a difference between what is sacred and secular. We worship on Sunday, and then we get back to real life. Some people's work environments are so ungodly, it's very hard for them to see the connection between work and worship. Now, these three words, as to Christ, if you're a Bible highlighter, why don't you highlight those? This, if you like to highlight things in your Bible, some people you highlight so much that, you know, you don't, everything's highlighted. <laughs> Saw somebody's Bible like that the other day. The whole page was highlighted. Like, I do, <laughs> okay. As to Christ. Now, if these words, if this, what God is saying here through Paul, if this gets into our heart, this is completely life-changing. These words will change your life if you will let them. This tells us plainly that the service that we offer to our employers is to be given just like we are serving Jesus himself. The way God sees it, we are serving him as we serve at our job. There is no difference between secular and sacred. When you become a Christian, it's not like this is sacred religious spiritual time and then when you go to your job Monday, you're in some sacred world that's you know, completely separate from this spiritual life. When you become a Christian, everything is sacred. Everything is worship. Everything is, uh, you, you know, you're engaged in life now everywhere as a Christian. You know, Jesus didn't go around with his disciples and say, oh, okay, we've been doing ministry all day, but now let's just go have some secular time where we'll no longer behave as, you know, disciples 
uh, you know, and we'll, we'll let our hair down and, and you know, we'll, we'll be not, you know, not Christian during this time. There's no difference between secular and sacred for the Christian. He goes on and he continues with the manner that, in which we are to obey, and it says, not with eye service as men pleasers. Now, what does eye service mean? So, this illustration hit me yesterday. I was out jogging, right? And uh, as I'm jogging, I'm on my way back, right? And so, you know, you know how it is when you go running and you're on your way back. You know, you've got, you're doing better on the way there. And then when you're on your way back, you're not doing so well, right? And so I'm on my way back and, you know, coming up around the corner, uh, beautiful, there's the cow pasture on one side and all these yellow flowers on the other side and a nice little trail. And, and here I come around the corner and I see a couple off in the distance and they're tending to their children and they got a stroller. And, and uh, right as soon as I see them, you know, I go from being like, uh, uh, to like, you know, <laughs> my form's all good. The gait's perfect. You know, my stride's all good again. My breathing's on point. I speed up just a little bit, you know, and I, and I go by them and I'm like, hey, you know, how you doing? <laughs> and I go right around the corner, right around the corner from them and instantly back to like, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you know what, Lord, that's eye service right there, you know? I mean, I was doing the right thing while somebody was watching me, Right? When your boss is watching you and then you do a good job, but then when your boss stops watching you and you go back to slacking off, that's eye service. A couple of examples. The office slacker, an employee who looks busy but accomplishes little, only working when the boss is watching. The restaurant server, an employee who acts helpful to customers but then resents having to serve others and only does it for the paycheck. You ever worked in a restaurant like that? The, the server goes out through the door. They're like, coming out, coming in. And they go out and they're like, oh, hey, I'd like to welcome you today. They got their flair and everything like, oh, yeah. And they go behind the door and they're like, oh, stupid. They're not tippers. <laughs> you know what I mean? You ever work in a place like that? Seen that. The retail employee who acts helpful to customers but resents having to serve and only does it for the paycheck. The virtual worker at home, you know, like who knows what's going on in their home office, but they're showing up for Zoom and you're like, you're like, what's going on back there? <laughs> they, got the, they got the virtual background behind them now with Google Meet. You know, that's a good thing, right? And you got, yeah, everything going. The praise seeker volunteer. This is someone who volunteers for recognition and admiration, the applause of man rather than genuinely caring. For others, you see that in churches a lot of time. You see some people, they'll want to serve the church just because they want accolades from man, and they may or may not be doing this for the Lord. And those are just some examples of giving eye service. My brother Kenny that used to come to the church here, Kenny Lumley, he passed away, and uh, God bless him. He uh, used to tell me that when he worked at Shopco, that he did this thing when he became, you know, a solid Christian. He, he pretended that the camera in the corner, you know, Jesus was sitting on the other end of that camera just watching everything he did. And uh, I think that's a good practice, you know, to realize that you're serving the Lord. You're not doing this with eye service, for eye service. You're, you're working as unto the Lord, not unto man. He goes on to say, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. As bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I love that, bondservants of Christ. A lot of the New Testament letters open up like that. James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's really interesting. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 15, 
Let me read this to you. If you're a Bible flipper, go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy 15. Um, well, yeah, never mind. I'm just going to read it to you because it's a long passage, but I'm not going to read the whole passage. So if you want to look it up later, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. When a slave could, you know, their time was up and they, had, they could leave, they also had the option to stay. You guys familiar with this story? And he says, and if this happens, that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you. Then you will take an owl, like, you know what an owl is, like an ice pick, and you will thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Now, the Jews, ancient, they had some weird rituals, right? But this one's it's beautiful in a sense. You've served as a servant in a home, and it comes time to go, and you come to the master and you say, I don't want to leave. I love you. I love it here. I want to serve with you forever. And so then if that's the case, then as the master, you take your servant to the doorpost of the house and you pierce his ear. I don't know why it's that. I tried to speculate. I'm like wondering about the Passover blood applied to the doorpost. And here you have the servant being pierced to commit to a life of service to this master. I think that there's something there with that. When people call themselves a bond servant of Jesus Christ, that's what they're getting at. They're saying, I don't want to leave you because I love you. Remember that song? I will serve you because I love you. You have given life to me. Remember that? I was nothing before you found me. You have given life to me. I love that song. That's the idea of it, right? Is being a bondservant. I don't want to go. I want to stay with you, Lord. That's what Paul's getting at in our passage. He says, you know, at work, you should be serving as a bondservant of Christ. Someone that has made a willing, loving commitment to be like Christ and to serve him. And you should view your job like that. When I go clock into work tomorrow, I'm showing up as a bondservant of Christ. I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please God. He says, doing the will of God from the heart. The Greek word suke is also translated soul in other places. In other words, go to work and do it from your soul. <laughs> Put your soul into it. Verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. This is still the manner in which we serve. In goodwill doing service. In other words, just like a cheerful, enthusiastic disposition, eager willingness at your job realizing that you are working for the Lord rather than working for people. First Peter talks about this same concept. Let me read a few different uh, instructions on this same concept from different letters in the Bible. First Peter 2.18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Wow. Peter adds this, that even if you have a harsh tyrant boss, you need to treat them with Christ-like character. Now, I would have to say this. If you can't treat your boss like this, if you just can't respect them, then you, know, you should probably look for a different job. But Peter adds that. He says this type of service, this bond servant sort of to Christ's service, can be offered even to a boss that's not an ideal boss. Titus 2.9 says, Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. 
In other words, don't talk back with your boss and, and be argumentative with them. 1 Timothy 6.1 says, Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. That's heavy duty, man. When these principles are not followed, the name of God and the teaching of the Bible are blasphemed. Brings up a powerful thought, right? That people are making up their mind about Jesus and the Bible by observing how you behave, how I behave. Some people struggle with knowing their purpose in life. One thing you have to know for sure is your purpose is to be like Jesus at your job. You're representing Christ at your job. You say, what's my purpose in life? Your purpose is to be like Christ everywhere in your life. So that's not what I'm looking for when I ask, what is my purpose? Well, I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible tells you your purpose is. When you get that straight, then God leads you into all the other different vocational things. But that's the purpose of life, is being like Jesus everywhere, doing what he does everywhere, in every relationship. If you ever leave your job when they're looking to hire somebody new, you really hope they say, man, you know, we, need, we should hire a Christian because of this last one that was here. It was so awesome. But they say, when you don't follow these things, when people leave and somebody's applying, the employer would say, let's just make sure we don't hire a Christian. <laughs> they never show up on time. They're always like sharing the gospel on their break time on work time, you know, the guy's got a Bible study going while he's clocked in. Like, let's make sure we don't hire another Christian. The name of God is blasphemed when Christians don't act like Jesus at work. He says, as to the Lord and not to men. This is a beautiful thing, as to the Lord, not to men. God makes it available for us to be servants of him rather than to serve man. Now, if that gets into your heart and that really, that'll transform your life. That takes uh, these common mundane duties of life and it gives them a spiritual meaning, a real purposeful meaning that affects eternity. This is how you have a song in your heart, is to realize that you're not serving man, you're serving God. Verse 8, we should be motivated by the rewards from Christ. He says there, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So the idea here is the Lord will take care of his children in proportion to how they serve others. Christ will reward service given unto him. Makes no difference if you're a slave, free, employer, employee. Your good may go unnoticed at your job, but the Lord will reward you. It's a beautiful thing. Reminds me of a guy that used to work in this factory that produced batteries, and his job was to bend the end up of this little metal plate all day. There was a metal plate, and his job was to bend the end of it, just like that. That was his job. And he had a stack of them, and he put them into this machine and went like this and put them over here when they were done, and that's what he did all day. And he was on break, and uh, one day sitting around the table with a bunch of other people, and the new guy comes up and says, hey, what all do you guys do here? And uh, this guy, he says, well, I bend plates. And the other guy, he asks, he says, well, what do you do? He says, I solder wires. And uh, the fourth, uh, or the third person says, well, I actually shrink wrap the batteries. And then the fourth, this gal answers, and she says, we save lives because we make batteries that go in medical devices. You see the difference? 
You have that same ability. Well, what do you do all day? Well, I flip burgers. Well, you also are called by the Lord to be like Christ, his representative in this community. You're surrounded by people that God has obviously put you around them for a reason. They need Christ. Here you are, his ambassador. I think your life has more meaning than you're uh, willing to admit or your focus is too narrow. I get inspired by my wife. She owns her own cleaning business. She's a server at a restaurant, but she's a tremendous witness to the people that are around her. She talks about Jesus with people that only, may only hear about him from her. And then when she sees the money come in uh, through the wages and tips, you know, she sees this from God, and then it's a way to facilitate and sustain ministry. We see our lives as a mission, our jobs as mission fields. Both Aaron and I work, you know, jobs, and then what we're doing is sustaining ministry that we're involved in. And all the people that we're surrounded with at our jobs, those are people that God wants us to share Christ with. The mission of Jesus Christ for, all, for himself and all of the people is world evangelism. And we've been called into this very important eternal thing. It's so exciting. You start looking at your life like that. You can see your life the same way. You're serving Jesus. There's nothing secular or mundane about your life. You belong to him. You're his worker. It's exciting. It really is. Trying to pair up those socks coming out of the dryer takes on a whole new meaning. Pairing up socks for the Lord. Obey your masters. Respect them. Fear, sincerity. Serve Christ, not man, consistently, not only when people are watching. Inner motivation from the soul, from the heart. Goodwill, wholeheartedly, peaceable spirit. Seeking rewards from the Lord. Now to the masters, verse 9. And you masters do the same things to them. Give up threatening, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. So if you're an employer, you got people working for you. You're the owner of the company. You're the manager. He says, do the same things, verse 9. That doesn't mean do the same exact jobs. It just means that same character, that same Christ-likeness, um, in, the, in that same way uh, as just described to the employees, the employers should exhibit that same uh, Christ-likeness. Serve your employees with the same great concern to not offend but please God. Now, Jesus teaches the concept of servant leadership. He says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you'd be the servant of all. This applies to employers and to bosses. Bosses, there's two different ways you can do it. You can bark from the top down or you can wash feet from the bottom up, right? And that's the way Jesus chose to do things is he chose to be a servant. He got down with a basin, took off his outer garment, and he washed feet. And it was shocking. In fact, Peter didn't understand it because that's not the way the world works. He says, I'll wash your feet. He says, no, I wash your feet. If you don't let me wash you, you got no part of me. Well, bathe me all together then. No, you don't need to be bathed all together. You just need your feet washed. In other words, I just need to serve you. I didn't only serve you this one time, but I need to continuously serve you, continuously wash you. That's how an employer should look at their employees. Now, if you get fired because you show up Monday and you got a basin and the other person above you, the district manager, is like, what are you doing washing feet? Well, it's a, it's a principle, you know. It's a concept. You're there to serve. Jesus said the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Giving up threatening, in Paul's days, masters often dealt with their slaves in a harsh way. God corrects that behavior today. I'm sure there are no bosses that threaten their employees today, but, you know, it kind of happened back in those days. There is a tendency of some business owners to threaten people to get work done or some bosses to get work done. Some do it subtly, others not so much, some directly, some indirectly. Bosses are not to get things done through threatening, but rather by displaying servant leadership like Jesus did. The next point in there, verse uh, 9, you see it again. Knowing that your own master is also in heaven. So bosses, employers, should always remember that they have a boss in heaven who's watching them. And in fact, that boss is the same boss of their employees. And that's a very helpful thing. Uh, You know, when you think about the fact that you have a boss in heaven, how does the boss in heaven treat you? He's long-suffering, he's merciful, he's kind, He's a servant. He gives you everything that you need and then some. He blesses you abundantly. He's consistent in everything that he does. He, I mean, man, I don't know if you can attest to this, but, you know, it says, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, right? Um, you know, essentially God promises in the word to, if you seek him first to take care of your needs. Can anybody attest to the fact that God has given you so much more than what you really, just what you need? I mean, He gives abundantly. Your cup runneth over. My cup runs over. He's put out a whole banqueting table. And that's how we're to treat our employees. That's how we're to treat people that serve under us. If you're in ministry and you're a leader of a ministry, that's how you treat the people that are underneath of you. You serve them. Next point, emphasizing equality before God. And look what he says there. And there is no partiality with him. God does not favor one person over another. And that's worth repeating. God does not favor one person over another. Now, our world doesn't look like that. It doesn't work like that, right? We judge people based on all kinds of different things. We file people into categories so quickly, it's a subconscious process for us. And granted, sometimes it serves a good purpose. You go into a dark alley, the guy's got a baseball bat, it's midnight. You know, you make a snap judgment, maybe I don't want to go down that alley, that's a good thing. But... That judgment process, we look at people, we look at how they dress, we look at, you know, how they speak, we look at these different things and we judge them and we file them into class systems. God doesn't do any of that. In fact, it says that God doesn't use many noble or many wise, but he uses the foolish things to shame the wise in this world. So it's interesting to remember that there is no partiality with God. And really, I think that's one of the main points of this text here. It's, the, the point is conduct at work, but also the thing is, is this partiality that people show. I was watching an undercover boss episode one day, and the boss was back in this room, and he was talking. He it was a hotel manager and or owner, and they were talking about how how you know in their minds how stupid the, the housekeepers were and stuff like that. And it was Hotel Impossible, and Anthony Melchiori, this guy that was anyway, he got a hold of him, and he goes, "You need to go out there and apologize to him." And and it, and it was just you know they were showing partiality. Like, here we are, we're in the winner's circle, and these are all peons, you know, they're workers. Well, he said, well, there's no partiality with God. If you view people like that, you're certainly not being like God. God doesn't see it that way. He's the great equalizer. All men and women are equal before him. It's a beautiful thing. He's the master. Christ-likeness as employees and employers. I want to conclude here couple minutes over, I apologize. In conclusion, friends, this is something that's been heavy on my heart this whole week. Something is heavy on my heart this morning. 
some of you are being ripped off by the enemy. Do you believe there's an enemy? Some of you are being ripped off tremendously by the enemy. You've bought into this whole, like, I don't know what my purpose is trap. Once the enemy can get you confused in this, thinking that you don't know your purpose, it's like a downward spiral of uselessness. You'll backslide if you stay in this most times. I don't know what my purpose is. Others of you are being ripped off by the enemy, feeling like your life is mundane and meaningless. You go to work day in and day out for nothing. You make money, you pay bills, you eat, you sleep, you do it again. You've bought into the lie that there is a difference between secular and sacred. Most of us will spend a large percentage of our lives working, so it's important to get this. These are two traps of the enemy, common. Oh, you don't know what your purpose is. Look at you. You're not, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're, you're getting robbed if the enemy's got that in your mind, that you don't know what your purpose is. Your purpose is clear. It's to be like Jesus everywhere. You've got your work cut out for you. So do I. Doing that. That's the most exciting life that you can live. Whether you're a janitor or a CEO or a, you know, uh, Roller coaster operator, whatever it is. If you're serving Jesus at any one of these stations in life, it's the best life that you're ever going to live. That's your purpose, is to manifest Christ wherever you are. That's your purpose. So never again, friends, if you've got a friend that always says, I don't know what my purpose is, never again let them get away with that because that's a trap of the enemy. Get you thinking that you don't have a purpose. Your purpose is now to be like Jesus. When we take these principles here and apply them, something beautiful happens. Tomorrow when you wake up, life is no longer what you thought it was. Living as this passage teaches, it frees you from the drab monotony of life. Living as this passage teaches brings excitement and joy and fulfillment even, even into the most insignificant of tasks. The diaper you change becomes worship. The dishes that you wash become worship. The accounts that you manage, worship. The sales that you make, worship. The shelves that you stock, all acts of worship. The tables that you serve, all become worship. The coffee that you pour, the food you prepare, the lawn you mow, all of these are acts of worship when done with the appropriate heart. What do you imagine it would look like to live like this? How would your life change by simply becoming aware of this truth? There is joy unspeakable in this. Now, maybe you haven't entered into a relationship with Jesus, and so that's where it all starts. You're still living as your own master. You've never been saved. You're walking around dead in trespasses and sins, and you know that. To be saved today, you simply need to respond to the conviction of God upon your conscience that you've broken his laws, that you've sinned and fallen short of his glory. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages or the, the penalty for that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You have to realize that God made a way for you to be forgiven. John 3.16 says that he sent his son to die for you to pay the wages of your sin. The penalty for your sin God sent his son to pay that penalty. That's your way out. That's your way out of this conviction upon your conscience of your sinfulness. That's the way out. God's gracious gift. 
So you believe that. And then Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be. In salvation, we recognize we've broken God's laws. We need a Savior. We can't fix ourselves. That Jesus is that Savior. And then we make a choice. I'm going to turn from my unbelief. I'm going to turn from my life of sin. And I'm going to place my faith solely in Jesus Christ. Not my works. Not my baptism. Not my church attendance. Not my Bible reading. Not my confirmation document. I'm going to put my faith solely in Christ and Christ alone and what he's done on the cross. Trust that he's sufficient. Finally, you tell Jesus in the quiet of your heart or with your mouth, whatever. You say, I turn from my sin. I turn to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you can begin this glorious life of living for him. You've come from death to life. You've come into sacred life. Him is your master. We now live, live lives of purpose and meaning, lives of worship. Lord, thank you for this transformation that just this switch in perspective and, and perception of reality, just this change, what it brings, realizing that the Lord Christ is our master and you're a good master. Lord Jesus, give us grace in these areas. It's an incredibly convicting message, I'm sure, for most of us here. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to be like you in all circumstances. We can only do it by the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through us. Lord, thank you that you've transformed even the most mundane work into a glorious activity of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.